right, now let's take our Bibles, if you will, and open them to Galatians chapter 1. And this evening, I'm really pleased that we're able to get into the exposition of this text and of this letter that Paul wrote to churches in Galatia. This is one of Paul's most important letters as he addresses a subject that is absolutely essential, absolutely critical to our understanding of salvation. Uh, this letter was the was a battleground during the Protestant Reformation. It's one that set Martin Luther afire on the subject of justification by faith alone. And uh, Luther studied it diligently. It was very close to his heart. And he became convinced by the study of Galatians that the Roman Catholic teaching on justification was wrong. And he concluded from Paul that we are justified by faith without the works of the law. And that became a, a central issue in the Reformation. And when Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the cathedral door at Wittenberg, it was Galatians that was on his mind. Galatians has also been called the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. It's a book that is definitive in setting God's people free from Old Testament requirements of the Mosaic Law. Uh, and we're going to have opportunity to talk about that in more detail as we go along. Uh, Galatians set Jewish Christians free from the law and then also set Jewish converts free from requirements that people were trying to put on them concerning the law. And if you're wondering tonight, if you're like I am and you think about such things, if you wonder why you get to eat a ham sandwich, it's because of Galatians. That's why you don't have to eat kosher. It's because of what we learned in Galatians. And uh, in the Old Testament also, uh, you couldn't, they couldn't make garments that were mixed materials. You couldn't have a garment that was made of wool and of linen. You couldn't mix those two. And so if you have something on tonight, and I might be dating myself a little bit, but if you have something on tonight that's nylon, that's because of Galatians. That's why you're able to wear that. So Galatians set uh, people free from those types of laws that were done away with at the death of Christ. It ref- frees us from all requirements of the law, and that even includes the Ten Commandments as a, as a way of salvation. Uh, and it asserts the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. In Colossians, Paul said in, in the second chapter, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross." And that's written in Colossians, but Galatians is a full defense of that statement. And that just shows you how that the Word of God is always in agreement. These books complement one another on doctrine. And we can see here in Galatians, we do have doctrines with profound implications. There are three New Testament books that are very heavily weighted towards doctrine, and they're very important for our understanding of the Christian faith. Those three books are Romans, Ephesians, and Galatians. As you know, a couple of years ago, we went through Ephesians, and uh, tonight we're starting our study in the book of Galatians, or the second lesson that we have in Galatians. And hopefully, we'll get to the book of Romans, and we'll study that a little bit later on. Uh, Galatians has actually been called a rough draft for Romans, and so hopefully before I die, we will... uh, 
cover this trilogy of three very important books of the Bible. And then I might add to that, of course, we're studying in the meantime the Gospel of Matthew, and so we're getting the life of Christ, we're studying Revelation, and we're getting there the return of Christ, which is the blessed hope for all Christians. And then we may start, and this is kind of my plan right now, is to move from Revelation to the other end of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, and we'll start at the very beginning. And so hopefully through all of that, we're going to get a very well-rounded picture of the Word of God, and we'll touch on every major doctrine of Scripture as we go along. Now, I'd like for us then to turn our attention to the opening verses here in Galatians. And here the Apostle Paul writes, Paul, an apostle, not of man, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Last week we had the introduction to this epistle and uh, during that time I I took the opportunity to set the stage for this study. And we learned that the location of these churches that Paul writes to are in the southern part of Galatia. That would be the southern part of modern day Turkey. And these were churches that Paul started on his first missionary journey. And we read about that in Acts chapters 13 and 14. And we learn about the cities that Paul visited. Those were Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And determining to whom this letter was written has a lot to do to help with establishing the date of the writing of it. And if it was written to those churches of southern Galatia, then it points to a very early date. And so this would most likely make it the first letter that Paul wrote. Now, as we begin this study tonight, we're exploring a, an important part of the letter here, here at the beginning, and, and, and the, the doctrine, some doctrine is identified here in these opening verses. And as we studied last week, there are two major themes that we're going to find in Galatians. The first is the defense of the apostleship of Paul, and the second is the gospel of grace. And we're going to start with this end of it, and that is Paul's defense of his apostleship. And I want to begin with the first point of your outline, which is Paul's attitude in the defense. Now he writes here in verse number one, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now if you'll turn just a few pages over to the uh, sixth chapter, to the back here, to the sixth chapter of Galatians in verse number 11, he says there, ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. It was not Paul's custom to write the letters himself. He had an amanuensis. If you don't understand that word, we'll get a little bit of vocabulary tonight, and you can add a new word to your vocabulary. But Paul didn't write the letters, he dictated them. And an amanuensis is a person who the letter is dictated to, and that person writes the letter down. So Paul didn't often write his letters in his own hand. He dictated those to someone else. For example, in the book of Romans, it says there in uh, uh, Romans the 16th chapter, verse number 22, that there is a man named Tertius who was Paul's amanuensis. He says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. 
Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the thoughts that are written in Romans belong to him. He's not the one who who wrote this, only in the sense that he's the one that took down the dictation, then he sent the letter out. So it was Paul's custom not to write the entire letter, but he did write parts of it. And what he would do is he would write the salutation of the letter rather than the body of it. And we find that in 2 Thessalonians 3.17 where he says this. He says, The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. So the opening part of the letter, usually that's the part that Paul wrote. But we find something different about Galatians. I want you to go back to Galatians 6 here just a minute again. And I might mention while we're here that there are two opinions about what Paul meant when he said he wrote a large letter. Now, either that means that he wrote a long letter with his own hand, and that would, of course, concern the length of the letter, or he means that he wrote it in large letters. And that second opinion is kind of interesting because it could be for two reasons that Paul, one of two reasons that Paul wrote with large letters. One would be that Paul wasn't used to writing in the Greek. And so what he would do is write in big block letters. I mean, similar to a child that's learning how to write in school. When they first learn how to write, what do they do? Well, they make big letters, make them as clearly as they can. And it might be that that's what Paul means when he says he wrote large letters. Or it could be, that he's talking about, uh, it could be talking about the, the size of the letters because Paul was, uh, maybe had bad eyesight and so the letters were large and deformed and some consider that poor eyesight is what Paul is referring to when he speaks of the thorn in the flesh that is mentioned in Second Corinthians 12 verse 7. But in any case, it was unusual for Paul to write these letters himself. But the book of Galatians is different from the others. He wrote this entire thing himself, and that is an indication that Paul was at a fever pitch when he wrote this. He was anxious to get it out. He was thinking his way through this as he wrote. And one of the reasons why he was at such a fever pitch and why he writes such an explosive letter as this is is that he was attacked concerning the office of apostleship. Now, the, the, the letter starts out with the description of him. He says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ. And that added information that we have at the beginning was very unusual for letters that were written in the first century. Usually what you did in the salutation of a letter is that you would mention your own name, then you would mention the person that you were writing to, then you would get into the body of what you wanted to say. And so when Paul adds this information at the very beginning, it's evident that there's something that's bothering him. And by looking at the content of this first verse, it's evident that what's bothering so much is there is an attack on his apostleship, and so Paul is anxious to defend himself. Now, what would be objections to Paul's apostleship? Why, why would people question this? Let's talk about that next, objections to Paul as an apostle. The first one is that Paul is not one of the twelve. Now, we don't know what the exact objections are because Paul doesn't enumerate them point by point for us. But we can see by his defense, the type of arguments that he gives, uh, that he's answering, that one of the objections must have been that he was not one of the original 12. Now, as we know, there were 12 men that were chosen by Christ during his personal ministry. And those 12 men stand out as unique in the history of the church. Jesus said those 12 men would sit on thrones judging Israel during his millennial kingdom. 
He also said, and we learned from reading the book of Revelation in our study there, that the 12 names of the 12 apostles will be inscribed in the foundation stones around the wall surrounding the new Jerusalem. So these are very special men. They're different from any others. They have a special function uh, in the church. Uh, One of those men was replaced, as we know, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the objection is that Paul was not one of those originally chosen men. And I might add to that that the apostleship is a unique office uh, because there aren't any apostles in the church today. These are men given very special standing by Christ. They're given special powers by him. They could heal. They could cast out demons. Uh, God spoke to them directly under inspiration, and they wrote things in the Bible. He directed them personally. So they were very foundational so that the book of Ephesians tells us that the church is built upon the apostles. They're a part of that foundation, and the teachings that they give us are final. They are authoritative. And that's because they did receive their doctrines by direct inspiration from God. Now remember, as we were studying 1 John, that he opens up his letter affirming that very same authority. Those opening verses say that, and then later on in the 5th chapter, he comes back and he mentions that once again. But the apostleship, becoming an apostle of Christ, that is not a transferable office. So there are no successors to the apostles. And so when the Pope claims that he has authority in his office because he is the successor to the apostles, he's wrong, He is a liar, he doesn't have that authority, he's a counterfeit, and he doesn't speak for Christ in the same sense that the apostles did. In fact, he doesn't speak for Christ in any sense because he believes in the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. So he can't speak for Christ in any way. But there are also others that claim apostolic succession. Uh, Some will use the name of apostle. Uh, Several years ago when I was doing church consulting, I ran across a lot of these fellows that used uh, apostle as a title. They would replace pastor of the church with the apostle of the church. They would call themselves apostle this or apostle that. But they are not apostles. And, And personally, I would be afraid to attach apostle to my name. I won't even put reverend in front of my name because I I don't want to claim any kind of authority or office that I don't have. So you can imagine that, that these people were saying that the Apostle Paul was not an apostle, that he wasn't one of the 12, he did not speak with authority, he had no right to teach on matters of circumcision and certainly no right to say that the Old Testament law had been set aside on that particular matter. And then Paul didn't come from the church at Jerusalem. The 12 apostles were all leaders in that first church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 6, we find the 12 called the entire church together, and they gave them the authority to appoint deacons for the church, and that was because the congregation was so large that they were unable to take care of all the administration of the church. And so they said, choose out some men from among you while we devote ourselves to the word of God. And that shows us that the 12 apostles were the spiritual leaders of that church, that they had divine authority that no one else had. But for Paul, they said, well, he's not a leader of the church in Jerusalem. Here's a fellow that's from the church in Antioch. Uh, He's from a church in Syria. And he's a persecutor of the church. He's not somebody that ought to be listened to. And so they attacked him because he was not a part of that original number. Then a second idea here objections that are made is that Paul does not have the qualifications now if you would let's go to the book of Acts chapter 1 
And we'll read a few verses here. There are 12 apostles chosen by Jesus, but we all know what happened to Judas. Judas betrayed the Lord, and then afterwards he was remorseful about that. He realized how despicable that he was. He couldn't live with himself. And so in his despair, he threw a rope over a tree branch, and he hanged himself. And then the apostles were tasked with the responsibility of choosing his replacement. Twelve is the full complement of the apostles, and that is a very significant number in Scripture. And so when Judas fell, somebody had to replace him. And in Acts chapter 1 is where we find the criteria for choosing a replacement for Judas. Now starting at verse number 15, Peter had explained to them the circumstances surrounding Judas' transgression and his death. And then he says in verse number 20 that the book of Psalms prophesied that Judas would fall... And that prophecy said that another thing would take place. It said another will take his bishopric. And that means that someone else would take his office. And so Peter said, this is what we're here to do. We're going to choose who will take this office. So in verse number 21, he states the qualifications for becoming an apostle of Christ. He says, wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, thou knowest the hearts of all men. Show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the twelve apostles." So there in those few verses, we have the qualifications. First of all, the person must have been with them all the time that Jesus was teaching. He must have been there from the baptism of John. And I take that personally to mean that he must have been baptized by John. He must have been a witness of the resurrection. And then, of course, if you wanted to put in the other qualifications, uh, we know that he would have to be an honorable person. He has to be a stellar, a person of stellar reputation. Well, they found someone like that. In fact, they found two men that were like that, and, and they put them up for a vote, and they cast their lots, and Matthias was chosen to take the place of Judas. And Matthias was probably a likely choice because he must have been just slightly outside of that circle of the apostles. It's likely that probably Jesus knew him because he was hanging around the apostles all of the time and he would have been with them except in those special times when Jesus called the apostles together by themselves. Now, this, this seems to be a problem here and that is that Paul does not have these qualifications He wasn't there at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He wasn't there in the middle of it. And he wasn't there at the end of it. He didn't keep company with the apostles. And we discussed the last time. There there is no proof in scripture that Paul had even met Jesus during his personal ministry. And then Paul wasn't baptized by John. He was baptized by Ananias. John the Baptist was already dead. He died before the crucifixion of Christ. And Paul wasn't there to witness the resurrection. Now, we'll, get to, we'll probably see that a little bit later on. Well, we will when we talk about that. And, and he what, did become a witness of the resurrection because he saw Christ personally. But as far as these criticizers are concerned, Paul is not a contender for this office. 
While others are building the church, Paul was persecuting the church. So in their minds, he does not have the qualifications to be an apostle. Now, that kind of opposition was a type that Paul ran into constantly. Galatians is not the only place where Paul gives a defense of apostleship. Now, he speaks more about it here, and, and uh, uh, we see a greater defense of it here. But this is a problem that dogged Paul all throughout his ministry. And so if this is the first letter that Paul wrote, it is his first defense. And so you can see why he's boiling over and he's anxious to get this letter into the works. Somebody's messing with the minds of his converts in Galatia. Somebody is trying to tear down the work that he began there and all that, all that traveling that he did, starting those new churches. Somebody has infiltrated that church. And so Paul is, or all of those churches, and so now Paul is hot to write about these people that were buying into the complaints that were made against him. So we see his attitude. He's very agitated about this. But we have to keep in mind that it's not sinful agitation. He's not prideful about this. This is not Paul saying, well, who do they think they are? I'm the great apostle Paul. Who do they think they are to challenge my authority? Paul isn't like that. In fact, Paul was one who considered himself abased. He was the abased apostle. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for I am the least of the apostles and am not meet or not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so his attitude of agitation is against those Judaizers and what they're doing to the flocks in Galatia. And so he takes up his pen and he writes personally. And I suppose the time that he took, the labor that he put into this letter, uh, not being able to write in the Greek perhaps and with poor eyesight, that the tone of his letter comes through very clearly. Sort of like writing an email in all caps. You know, that when you write an email in all caps, that, that's like you're shouting at someone. You know, I, I used to have a, had a fellow that was writing to me, and every letter that he sent me, it was all caps, every sentence ended with an exclamation point. And I would read those letters, and, and it got really irritating to me that he would write that way. So I finally wrote him back, and I said, don't send me any more emails. If you want to talk to me, come see me. You know where I am. So I wanted to get rid of that. Well, Paul's not being rude here. What he's doing is trying to protect his sheep, the flock, from the wolves that infiltrated with a false gospel. Now, secondly, we would note here Paul's authority in the defense. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, Paul has a problem with qualifications, or so it seems, And so where did Paul get the authority to call himself an apostle? Where does he get the authority to say, I speak for Christ? Where does he get the authority to say the Old Testament ceremonial laws have been set aside? Where does he get the authority to interfere here and say you don't have to circumcise Gentile converts? Now, if a person is going to call himself an authority, where does he get it? Well... Some folks don't like what I'm going to say next, but I have to say it anyway because the Bible says it. First point is that Paul was chosen before he was born. Now, his authority didn't start 50 years or so ago before this. It didn't start at the beginning of Christ's ministry, but it stretched all the way back before the world was created. And Paul is the one who has so much to say in Scripture about this subject, how that God's people are the elect and are chosen before the foundation of the world. 
But, of course, there are many that want to argue that, and they say, well, we agree that that God chooses people. I mean, that's very clear from Scripture. But the election of God is unto service and not to salvation. And that's a very common argument. So we're going to look at that for just a minute and see if being chosen to service is unrelated to being chosen to salvation. I think that we would all admit that if a person is chosen before he believes then it doesn't matter how long before he believes, whether that's five minutes or whether it's an hour, whether it's a year, whether it's 10,000 years. If he's chosen before he believes, then it means that person had nothing to do with the choosing, that he comes by the sovereign pleasure of God. Now, I want you to notice something that Paul says about God choosing him, and you don't have to go far to find it. You just slide down the page to verse number 15. It says here, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Now that kind of hits you right in the face, doesn't it? That it says, when it pleased God. And there you have the sovereign pleasure of God that he works according to his own will, not ours. So God separated him from his mother's womb. So what we have here is a decision that's made by God before Paul was born. And Paul said, I have been called to this apostleship before I was born. And that's why I preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now let me ask you something about that. How would God decide that he would preach the gospel before he was born if he hadn't decided to save him before he was born? Now, some people use the same argument when they approach Romans 8, 29, and 30, where it says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so they say, well, there you have it. We are predestined to service and not to salvation. Well, how are you going to get predestined to service unless you first get saved, unless you're predestined to salvation? I mean, that's a package deal, isn't it? Paul says in Romans 8:29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. It doesn't say what he did foreknow. If it said what, then we could agree. Well, maybe he is talking about service. What is service? It says whom he did foreknow. And folks, that's not service. That's the person. Whom is a person. So you can't get around sovereign election by saying, well, Paul means service and not salvation. You can't get service unless you first go through salvation. And so when Paul says, I am separated from my mother's womb to the apostleship, of course, he's also speaking of his salvation. And that's a calling that we know according to scripture goes back a long, long time. And when we get down to verse number 15, you can be sure we're going to take another look at that. Then the second thing we would notice is that Paul was called directly by Christ. Paul, an apostle. Now there, he says, an apostle. That's an affirmation of apostleship. That's a claim that he has the right to speak for Christ and he has the authority. Now, what does, why does he have the right? Well, he says he's an apostle, not of men, neither by man. And so that, that shows us, or Paul is saying here, I have, I'm not ordained in the same way that Matthias was chosen. It's not like the apostles gathered around him and they said some hocus-pocus words and they exalted him into this office of apostleship. And, and, that, and there was nothing wrong with what Peter and the apostles did when they chose Matthias for the apostleship, even though there, there are some that say that that was the wrong thing to do. That's the position J. Vernon McGee takes. He said Paul, or rather Peter, had no right to, uh, to call this meeting. And, and the apostles had no right to choose uh, P, uh, Matthias as an apostle. But Paul is saying here, 
This is not like that. He said, I'm not like that. He said, the 12 did not have a hand in this. They didn't appoint me. Now, if you want to carry that over into the modern day, it would be like Paul saying, I didn't go through an ordination council. There was nobody that questioned me, and based upon the answers to certain questions, they conferred the office of apostleship on me, and then they sent me out to preach. Well, next month, we're going to have a guest speaker from Modesto, and this is a young man that was ordained to the gospel ministry in 2010, and I went there to be a part of that ordination council. And so I sat on that council, and I asked questions, and I learned what he believed, and I was very much impressed with the answers that he gave to the questions. I was impressed with his grasp of doctrine and what he knew about Scripture, in fact, I was more impressed with him than any other candidate and any other ordination council that I've been a part of. And so I wanted him to come here so you could hear him. And uh, he'll be here uh, to preach on a Sunday morning and Sunday night next month. So we sat on that council and we gave a recommendation to the church. And then he was ordained into the gospel ministry. So if you take what Paul says here and you try to modernize this, modernize it a little, he would say, this was not a council of men. They didn't ordain me. I didn't get my authority from them. John Brown, a 19th century commentator, has a good comment on it. He says, a man may have a divine communication made to him and a divine authority and command to impart this to others, and yet he may have obtained both the one and the other through the instrumentality of man. That is the case with every rightly called gospel minister. That was the case with Timothy. His message and authority were both divine, but he received the one from Paul's instruction and the other from the laying on the hands of the presbytery. But the apostle was divinely appointed to his office and furnished with his commission from Jesus Christ without human intervention. So Paul's authority did not come from the apostles, It wasn't men that decided this. It was an appointment made directly by Jesus Christ. And I might add something here. And and we're going to see little bitty nuances of Scripture as we go through the book of Galatians. Just words and phrases that we need to pay attention to because they have profound meaning. We'll notice here that he says, by Jesus Christ and God the Father. And he doesn't say, by Jesus Christ and by God the Father. And that's very important because using one preposition instead of two and using the conjunction and between those, it indicates that there's a very intimate, close connection between God the Son and God the Father. And it's also very important because Paul is stating that Jesus Christ and God the Father are the instruments by which he was chosen. And, of course, God is the source of all spiritual being. And so not only is God the instrument by which he's chosen, God is the source of it. And that makes Paul's statement turn out like this. I am not a man-sponsored apostle. I am a God-sponsored apostle. Well, that leaves us with another question. If Paul was called directly by God, then when did it happen? Well, we know when the twelve were called. We go back to Matthew 10. Matthew 10 says, And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. And then it goes on to name who the twelve apostles were. And according to Matthew 10 verse 2, there is the first designation of those men as apostles. So when was Paul called? 
Well, I think all of you know the answer to that, but I'm running out of time and I'm not going to get to it. I'm going to save uh, the rest of this for the next time. But Paul was called directly by Christ. And when we come to the next lesson, we're going to look at the scriptures where Paul received his commission directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope that the beginning of this is beneficial to you. I mean, I, I, I think it's good for us to know the background information. It's important for us to know why do we accept the authority of the gospel writers and not of anybody else? We don't trust any other authority. And so if you have someone that comes to you and says, hey, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I've got a revelation from God. I've got something I'd like to tell you. You say, don't te-, speak to the hand. Whatever you do, uh, don't, you don't need to listen to that. Uh, there are no modern day apostles. Our revelation is right here in God's word. And that's the only revelation we have. It's the only revelation that we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come into your presence now. We, we do thank you so much for this new study that we have in the book of Galatians. And it's already been a thrill to me to look at this and just to see uh, the, the great doctrine that's contained here and just all the, the different avenues that we can go down to learn more about the Christian faith. Just astounding what the apostles could write in so few words that have such profound meaning. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand it, open it up to us, help me as I teach it to say it in the right way and so people can understand it. So we thank you for that, Lord, and we just ask for your blessings to be upon all of your people who've come tonight for this study. And we give you the praise for all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.